Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into Song of Ice and Fire with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, we kicked off Book 5 by doing the first part of the first chapter, Minas Tirith, in which Pippin was introduced to the city and its steward Denethor, to whom he immediately swore his sword. And this week, we're going to be wrapping up Book 5, Chapter 1, Minas Tirith. Last week, Pippin was caught in between Gandalf and Denethor, used as a pawn in their clearly pre-existing rivalry. It was an uncomfortable spot to be in, and now Tolkien takes the time to remind us of the difference between the two. When Pippin nervously asks if Gandalf is angry with him, saying, I did the best I could, we might expect Gandalf to snap at him, and Gandalf the Grey might have fool of a took. But Gandalf the White is different, for better or worse. Merry says it best when the hobbits all reunite in Book 6. Gandalf is not so close as he used to be, though he laughs more than he talks. The ragged intimacy of Gandalf the Grey is replaced by a more cosmic perspective, but that can still produce joy, as Tolkien describes it here. Great joy, like a fountain bubbling over in this dead place. Enough to set a whole kingdom laughing. And Gandalf acknowledges that Pippin was caught between two terrible old men, that's how he puts it. Gandalf does what he has to, but he always keeps an eye on the mortals to make sure they're okay. Denethor doesn't really care about those in his charge. As we've already seen, he just doesn't play fair. And Gandalf does. He acknowledges that there's really nothing Pippin could have done to hide Aragorn, this awkward structuring absence in his story. And anyway, the people here are so obsessed with old stories that Denethor could have figured out a lot of it from context clues. Denethor is a very good close reader. He's hard to fool, and it's dangerous to try, Gandalf says, speaking words of qualified praise for the guy who just pissed him off. Denethor is dangerous precisely because he's so smart and skillful. We've already seen this play out with Saruman. Intelligence curdles into arrogance, as the learned start to think themselves better than everyone else. It also reminds me of Sauron, how he might have looked and acted in bodily form. And now Pippin, by swearing his sword, is tied to Denethor as he was to Sauron. Two pairs of eyes on either side of the seeing stones. Gandalf is worried, to say the least, about Pippin swearing himself to Denethor's service, but he saw that it emotionally touched the old man. And he needs the hobbits for that sort of thing, to ground him emotionally, doing things he no longer can. Like how he was glad that Sam went along with Frodo, something he didn't see coming. Plus, Pippin can now be Gandalf's spy. But what will Denethor ask of him? What is the price of service? Gandalf zooms out to get super meta, saying the board is set, the pieces are moving. The story is getting very far-flung, and Tolkien uses that to kind of provide an organizing principle for what's going on in our minds. The board is set. The pieces are moving. That's how Gandalf sees things, as do Denethor and Sauron. The enemy is making his opening moves. Gandalf is a player who cares about the pawns, as he calls Pippin. Worrying about Faramir, asking Pippin to care for Shadowfax. The Nazgul wouldn't do that. Gandalf also recognizes that the pawns can make moves of their own. He recognizes the limits of his own powers, which many on his level don't. The idea is to focus on what you can control. Gandalf has done all he can, he says, and tomorrow will bring what it will. So Pippin sets out on his own. He hears a clear, sweet bell and describes the sound like silver in the air. 
Minas Tirith has this wonderful atmosphere at times, amidst all the horror, like an echo of Rivendell. It would be a great place to relax, if you could. Pippin starts to wonder what it's like to actually live here. It can't all just be a monument to the dead, right? It would be breakfast time in the Shire, he thinks, parallel to Sam longing for tea time in decent places back in Book 4. They must eat and sleep in Minas Tirith, right? There must be real people here. And now Pippin meets one. Some random guy comes walking up. And it's interesting that Tolkien could have written this with Pippin being afraid of the big folk shrinking into the shadows, but he feels lonely. And so he's determined to speak up, make new friends, make a new fellowship. He doesn't even have to, though, because this guy's looking for him. Pippin's not so alone after all. By swearing to Denethor, he entered a new community. This is Baragond, and his introduction is the exact opposite of Denethor's introduction. Baragond isn't using Pippin to get a leg up on anyone else, and, and he actually gives him useful information, along with food and drink. Above all, Baragond treats Pippin as an equal, greeting him with a handshake. He's the essence of a good guy, someone you can trust. He's like the best co-worker in a new job, showing you the ropes while the manager acts like you're already letting them down. Baragond embodies the ideal of service, that which Denethor has corrupted. And there's an emphasis throughout this part of the chapter on community ties, on how society keeps going down here on the game board with the pawns. After all, this is what they're fighting for. This is what both Aragorn and Theoden are separately racing to save over the next couple of chapters. And this is vital because it's not actually the likes of Denethor, with all his history, heritage, and heraldry, who saves the day. It's the humble hobbits. And Baragond, like Sam, is not aristocratic. As he says, neither office nor rank nor lordship have I, being but a plain man of arms of the third company of the Citadel. He's here to answer Pippin's questions, but he's not just an NPC with a text prompt. Baragond has questions of his own. Not ones connected to his greed like Denethor, but connected to wonder and curiosity about the other. His stories don't speak of the halflings. Exactly what Treebeard told Pippin. It's a two-way street for those eager to learn. All Baragond asks of Pippin is his story. For all that Pippin feels beneath the attention of the men of Gondor, he also actually has a valuable connection in Gandalf. That's how he got inside the city, after all, and Baragond wants to know more about Mithrandir. But as I said last week, Pippin is starting to realize that he's basically always taken the wizard for granted and doesn't really know anything about him at all. Pippin compares Gandalf's life to a story. I've only read a page or two of the book. The first step toward wisdom is admitting, you know nothing, Jon Snow. But Pippin is still Pippin, always putting his foot in his mouth like so many hobbits. Sam gave away the ring to Faramir in book four, and now Pippin immediately mentions the one person he's supposed to keep his mouth shut about, Aragorn. Baragon asks who Aragorn is, and Pippin has to go, oh yeah, just a guy, you random, ordinary, forgettable guy. Think he's in Rohan now? Thankfully, that distracts Baragon. Oh right, Rohan. Sure hope they're coming to save our sorry butts. So anyway, Pippin, what do you want to know? Well, Pippin doesn't have any questions about Gondor's history, like Gandalf said, or how the war is going. He wants to know where they eat around here. And why not? Isn't that the most important question, really? No matter what happens with Denethor and Faramir and Gandalf, everyone's got to eat and sleep. The mundane realities of experience that you come to treasure when they suddenly might be taken away from you. Sam's going through the same thing in Book 4, longing for the easy comforts of home now that it's not so easy to get your hands on herbs and stewed rabbit. Where are the inns, Pippin asks. What about breakfast and all that? Ugh, do you even have breakfast here? It's funny, Pippin is comic relief, but he's also sincerely trying to give his life here some kind of shape and structure. 
Cooking and eating ground us in the present moment, making life about more than honoring the dead, building monuments to how things used to be. Food is also a huge part of how we forge bonds with one another, whether friendly, familial, or romantic. It's the stuff of life, both literally and figuratively. All the more so now, because an army marches on its stomach. Baragond is probably holding back laughter at this point, but they treat each other politely. Pippin saying he hoped that such wise and courtly men would help him get drunk, and Baragond saying such are the concerns of worldly travelers like Pippin, unlike local boy Baragond. These formalities aren't incidental. It's how they bridge the cultural gaps between them, establishing good faith, a common reference point. We saw that with Frodo and Faramir in Book 4, when they had their little exaggerated pieties upon parting. It's always a language game for Tolkien. Pippin chastises himself for greed, while allowing that Baragond would politely call it hunger. He refers to his wizard friend as Gandalf, or Mithrandir as you know him. A world woven of words, wherever we go. As Baragond puts it, strange accents do not mar fair speech. You're from a different place, you're literally a different species, but that doesn't mean we can't be friends, break bread together. Baragond even learns to call his new friend a hobbit, their own name for themselves, rather than halfling. Pippin, again, being Pippin, almost has a stroke when he learns he missed the breakfast menu at the Minas Tirith McDonald's, but Baragond promises to help him raid the pantry. First, they check in on Shadowfax, as Gandalf asked. Pippin doesn't let hunger distract him from his duty, a sign how seriously he's taking this. Only then do they load up on food. Bread, cheese, wrinkled apples, simple fare, but tasting like ambrosia in context. Baragond takes them to a spot with a view, where, as Tolkien puts it, they could look out on the morning over the world. It's one of life's great pleasures, eating with a great view, feeling your thirst and hunger fade as your other senses drink it all in. They get to know each other over lunch, trading stories about their respective homes. As always in Lord of the Rings, it comes down not only to language, but to time. Baragond has to reconcile Pippin's childlike appearance with the adventurous life he's lived lately, beyond the experiences of most old men in Minas Tirith. Baragond thought of Pippin as a page, he said, but he was wrong. Pippin's a knight, the son of Paladin. But Pippin says he is young, in Shire Reckoning. We all relate to time differently, but we can still bond over how it feels to pass through it. We're all young once, regardless of how you measure it. Anyway, Pippin doesn't think his story is all that interesting. Now that he's stuffed his face, he wants to know more about Gondor. And Tolkien obliges with one of his signature landscape descriptions, sweeping and craning like a camera across the Pelennor fields, describing the great lines of traffic hurrying south. This is why the city looked so empty to Pippin. The civilians are being sent away to keep them safe from the shadow. Or as safe as they can be, anyway. But even when everyone was still inside, Baragon says, there were too few children. And now there are none. Well, not none. Baragon mentions his own son, setting him up for later. But still, the melancholy feeling lingers. There's a sense of despair about the future. That Gondor is aging with no one left to take up the mantle. Where will the next generation come from? I love how Tolkien uses geography to reflect the changing mood here. It's as if everything is going to be okay as long as Pippin only looks at green and growing things, the life persisting in the Pelennor fields. But his gaze is drawn like a magnet up and out and east. There he can just make out the ruins of Osgiliath on the river. As Baragond says, that was the true crown jewel of Gondor, the central city. Minas Tirith was initially conceived as a fortress. So the dissonance between military and civilian life here is deliberate on Tolkien's part. It's supposed to give us a sense of dislocation, humiliation, and loss. 
We weren't all supposed to be here. That was the city we were supposed to fill with light and life and laughter, like the dwarves of Moria. And just like Moria, all we're left with is the ruin made by war and time. This is a fortress, but it doesn't feel like home. Not until the return of the king, anyway. Osgiliath burned. And even when the men of Gondor took it back, then they had to face down the Fell Riders, what Pippin, of course, calls the Black Riders. They're also the Nazgul, or the Ringwraiths. Like Gandalf, they have a different name wherever they go, different cultures responding to the same thing. At least we can all share our stories, unless they're too terrifying to tell. Names have power. Words have power. And Pippin left the Ringwraiths out of his story because it feels dangerous to speak of them, he says, so near, so near. He can't even say it. Tolkien tells us for him, as Pippin's eyes rise against his own will toward the eye that saw him from the Palantir, hidden behind the great wall of shadow eating up the horizon. Baragond summons his courage and says it out loud, Mordor. It's a taboo here, not only because it's a looming threat, but because that threat is so otherworldly, a function of atmosphere as much as armies. It's literally a gigantic shadow planning to kill you. How are you supposed to go around eating lunch and petting horses when you've got that staring back at you every time you lift your eyes? And that's relatable. We might not have literal dark lords in our world, but everyone knows the tension, the barely restrained panic of living under doom, whether it's legal, financial, personal, or an all-consuming disaster like COVID-19 or climate change. It can rob you of the ability to enjoy your life. As much as Pippin fears the battle itself, this is worse, he says, waiting around to die, feeling like you have no control over what's about to happen. Not only does Pippin feel like a pawn, he feels, he says, like a pawn on the wrong chessboard, out of context, unable to act. What can they do? Well, we saw Denethor light the beacons, and now Baragond tells us why. This war extends beyond their sight, even from way up here. Down south, the Corsairs of Umber are sailing against Gondor, threatening the coastal regions and drawing off many men who would otherwise be here, defending the capital. Baragond demonstrates his thoughtful perspective. He doesn't have a seeing stone like Denethor, which is set up here when Baragond says the steward sends out his thought to wrestle with Sauron, but Baragond has a clearer point of view regardless. He sees that this war isn't all about Gondor. Just look at Book 3, all about Rohan and Isengard and the Ents. Gondor isn't the only realm at risk, but it does bear the brunt of Sauron's wrath. Baragond says that hatred comes down out of the depths of time. It's the sins of the father, the crushing weight of history making itself known in the relatively brief lifespans of mortal men. Like the classic line from Ulysses, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. The Dark Lord wants to destroy the White Tower, and as Pippin thinks, he has so many tools with which to do it. One of them? is watching, passing in front of the sun, a shadow on their hearts. It's a ringwraith on the wing. Baragond says that the very warmth of his blood is chilled. It's like the sun has fallen, and the vampires reign supreme. But when the shadow passes, the sun is still there, and so are the banners fluttering in the wind. Despair is the weapon of the enemy. If you give in, they've already won. As Pippin says, Gandalf fell into darkness, yet returned to the light a source of spiritual renewal, something that outlasts the shadow. Hope, Baragond imagines, will rest in some green hidden valley. Sounds like the Shire to me. 
Pippin hangs out for a while with Baragon's comrades, and I love that they've already got this rumor going that a hobbit prince showed up with a huge army, and all the Rohirrim are going to ride into battle with a hobbit on their saddle like a kangaroo cub in a pouch. It's a funny image, and we dismiss it with Pippin, but this is exactly what's going to happen with Merry and Eowyn, a.k.a. Durnhelm. Very sneaky foreshadowing there. Pippin is a princeling in their eyes, Erneali Ferianoth. Just as he's telling them about hobbit words, he's fitting into their language, their stories, the free peoples coming together as they have not done since the days of the Last Alliance. But Pippin doesn't impress Baragon's son Burgil at first, hanging out with his street gang of Dickensian orphans. Burgil doesn't think Pippin is a prince, nor even a man of Gondor, as the hobbit introduces himself. He's got that spunky kid energy, always trying to be an adult. I'm ten already. Like time is a race he can win. It's an affront that someone shorter than him gets to wear the fancy uniform. But Pippin doesn't exactly feel at home in the uniform either, despite being the advanced age of 29. He knows exactly how to handle the brat. Frighten him. Tell him that in the Shire, Pippin is big and strong. Folk are not always what they seem. Mess with me, and I may have to kill you. Pippin is learning to lean into his rep. Confidence is something you fake until you make, and he gets that this little social circle runs on masculine swagger. He looks on them fondly, like they're his kids, as well as his peers. I love the bit where Pippin says Baragon sent him, and Burgle is terrified like, oh shit, he's about to send me away, I knew this was coming, anything but that. I can't lose face, even unto death. Friendship made, they scurry off to see the rest of the soldiers arrive. And there's some great world building here. We get a sense of all these different areas of Gondor, what the people are like, how their unique cultures inform what they bring to the table. First up is Forlong of Lossernak. Burgil says that's where his grandfather is from, cementing the sense that these are not just national ties, but literal kinship. The men of Forlong may look different from those Pippin has met in Minas Tirith, but they're still part of the same community. True heart, true friend, as the crowd cheers. Same goes for the tall bowmen of Blackroot Vale, the herdsmen of Anphalos, the fisherfolk of the Aether, and of course, the knights of Dol Amroth, following their prince Imrahel, a significant supporting character in Book 5. They're all part of Gondor. Unfortunately, the other thing they have in common is that there just isn't enough of them. Always too few, Tolkien writes. Always less than hope looked for or need asked. The whole country is aging and withering, not just the capital. And more to the point, every region is holding back men. They have good reason. The Corsairs are on the move, as established in this chapter. But I also get the sense that maybe they no longer have faith in Denethor or his city walls. Maybe they think it's all over, and they would rather die at home with their families, if it comes to that. That's the grim atmosphere Tolkien summons when the last soldiers have marched inside. Less than 3,000, all told. No more would come. The marching songs and tramping footsteps fade, leaving only the silence of the shadow. The wind dies down, night descends, the setting sun turning the great mountain black and fringing it with fire, symbolizing Denethor's downfall, turning to the mountain of death and setting himself on fire. The people light what candles they can, join their voices in song. Burgil says he wishes Pippin had come in peacetime so they could explore Gondor together, go around causing mischief on his grandfather's land like you do in the Shire. Instead of just watching what little they have trickle in through the gates, to what is starting to seem like a trap. At the end of the chapter, Pippin awaits Gandalf, but even the White Wizard is little comfort in these dark times. Pippin overhears him mutter, when will Faramir return? They lack Faramir, they lack enough men to guard the city, and above all, they lack the king to set it to rights. The sense of a collective descent is palpable, 
especially when Gandalf delivers the parting shot of the chapter. There will be no dawn. The shadow as an all-consuming dread, eating up daylight and hope along with it, will persist into the next couple chapters, as first Aragorn and then the Rohirrim ride into the shadow with little hope of finding their way back. As Baragond said, this is the last breath before the storm, which is just about to break. So I've been wrapping up these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago and how they handle each stretch of the material. And the movie adaptation of Return of the King doesn't really adapt this part of the story. They give some of Baragon's lines to Faramir in order to establish a relationship between him and Pippin, which I think is solid setup for making Faramir's almost death that much more dramatic from Pippin's perspective. And so, since I didn't talk about it last week, I'm going to talk this week about the movie's adaptation of the introduction to Denethor. And this is a sticking point for a lot of people, especially big fans of the book series. And I think John Noble does give a great performance as Denethor, a great physical performance. His bent head, his quivering jowls, his flashing eyes. I love the voice especially. It starts like it's about to break, but then it becomes cold and determined when it gets angry. Problem in context is that it's just, it's a little too over the top. Fans of the books talk about it in terms of ruining the more subtle and complex character from the book series, but even just looking at the movies in isolation, it's difficult to imagine how this guy has stayed in charge without a worm-tongue figure to keep a grip on things. He's lacking a sense of strength and dignity. You don't get the idea that Denethor is a worthy opponent to Gandalf at all. And this is one of those things that just might be difficult to translate, like with Faramir, that these characters are, are too complex, too subtle, and just too literary for the broad emotional sweep of the movies. I think what's unfortunate is that they ended up just kind of stacking the deck to make Gandalf right in all situations, telling Denethor to light the beacons and asking where are the armies, and these are things that Denethor actually does take care of in the book. From a writing perspective and keeping an eye towards the audience, I do understand that they wanted to keep Denethor's focus on Aragorn, that they give him lines in his intro scene in the movie that don't crop up until later in the books. That's something I think everyone can grasp, but that's where Denethor's mistrust comes from. It's a very literal confrontation over the return of the king, instead of just as a concept, which is how Gandalf and Denethor handle it in this first chapter. All that said, even more than Denethor, in this part of the movie, Minas Tirith itself is the star of the show. The film's design of the city was inspired by Mont Saint-Michel, that great sense of a tall sanctuary emerging from the mists. It's a massive miniature, bigotures as they called them, like the Black Gate or Helm's Deep. And actually they reused part of the Helm's Deep set for this, Waste Not, Want Not. And it, it looks so great, just jutting out perfectly from the mountains, the rock like a ship. It's one of those moments in the movies where I gasped because it's just, it's just like I imagined it when I was reading it. As Gandalf and Pippin ride around the circles through the gates, the camera spinning above them, you really get the sense of vertigo, that this place is maybe too tall. There's a strong color design of gray and weathered white, and it helps that Helm's Deep was mostly at night in the rain so they don't look too similar. That distinctive splash of green atop it all helps it stand out, as does the distinctive costume design. More kind of military than the Rahiram, but also stiffer and more ornamental, suggesting they haven't actually seen battle in a while, and the Rahiram might be more up for the task. And then Pippin sees the tree, the weathered white tree he saw in the Palantir, there's that great shot with the tree in the foreground and the fire in the background to contrast them. And Gandalf lays out the world building very simply to Pippin and the audience. And he's seen from below telling Pippin to shut up. It emphasizes even more than the book that Pippin is the audience avatar. He's our perspective on things. The hall is well designed. It has those intimidating rows of kings. It has the pattern of the tree behind the empty throne. All those, those wonderful details from the book that give you such a strong impression of place. 
And I really like how this scene is, is shot and edited. You get those frontal shots of Billy Boyd as he sees the horn zooming in to reflect his traumatic flashback, and this is how he forges an emotional connection with Denethor. Pippin really is the heart of the movie Return of the King in a lot of ways, and his conflict is set up well here with regards to his vows. And there's that great creepiness as this part of the movie ends, Pippin and Gandalf in their chambers as, as they are at the end of this chapter. There's that great stillness, that distant doom. It works better for me, actually, than the build-up to Helm's Deep, especially the connection they make to Frodo, talking about him, Gandalf saying it was only a fool's hope that he could succeed. This is where, in the movie, they set up the Corsairs of Umber, featuring a little blink-and-you-miss-it cameo by Peter Jackson himself, as well as the Witch King, the great antithesis of those statues in the hall, the image of man corrupted that Peter Jackson captures so well in horror terms, that great helmet, those those spiky gauntlets, and Gandalf helpfully connects it for us to Weathertop, with lots of flashbacks to link it all together, back to when he stabbed Frodo, and then the movie immediately cuts back to Frodo. I love how Tolkien constructs the story, devoting whole books to what's going on with Frodo and Sam, and then books to everyone else. It really keeps up the tension, like going through book five, knowing the perilous situation Frodo and Sam are in, wondering if they can pull it off. It's really great storytelling. But that was never going to be workable in the movies, and I think the movies do a great job in their own right of cutting back and forth between the storylines at moments of emphasis, moments that, that bring up the connection, the emotional bonds between all these far-flung characters. And that's what makes them such great adaptations on their own terms. So that is going to wrap us up this week for Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com, and you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. So next week, we're going to jump back to Rohan, check in with some of those characters there, Aragorn and his companions, some familiar, some not, as he sets out on the path of the dead. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week for Book 5, Chapter 2 of The Lord of the Rings.